Welcome to Grasp Podcast, where we discuss the motivations and experiences that brought educators and researchers to academia. This is my conversation with Dr. Kevin Leach, a tenure-track professor of computer science at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Leach obtained his PhD from the University of Virginia in 2016 in computer engineering and was advised by Wesley Weimer. Since then, he has been a research scientist at the University of Virginia and a senior research fellow at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Dr. Leach's research interests span system security, software engineering and human decision-making, and conversational artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. What is the earliest memory that you have of interacting with the computer or your first experience with computer programming? How did you obtain this computing device? What did you do with it? Uh, what are some of the first initial feelings that you've had? Um, yeah, so I was, I was pretty fortunate as a child. Um, I was like five or six. I remember my, my dad had a computer for doing work. So it was this old Windows 3.1 workstation with a whopping like 64 kilobytes of RAM or whatever. Nice. And it, I, know, I remember it had KidPix on it, which as a child I found interesting. Um, uh, KidPix is like a, uh, I don't know, child toy version of Photoshop. So you could put in, you know, like colorful pictures and, and you know, it had built in like icons of animals and so forth. So you could kind of have this, uh, creative picture thing and then, you know, print it out or whatever and then, you know, mom would put it on the fridge, that type of thing. Um, so that's probably like the earliest, like going way back. Uh, um, my dad just sort of always had a computer laying around for work. Um, you know, eventually the I, I kind of picked up typing and I was, um, you know, I guess better than average at it. And so my parents eventually got a new computer, like a Windows 95 machine, and I started using it in like throughout elementary school for uh, you know, reports and so forth, and I, I took, a, took a liking to it. Um, eventually I got into programming initially with QBasic, QuickBasic, which is a weird, um, well an early variant, they have a you know, like Visual Basic that's incorporated into .NET macros these days with um, like Word documents and so forth, but uh, QBasic, an early iteration, uh, and I remember I, I uh, um, f like did a lot of development of like uh, text-based computer games, the type of thing where it would prompt you like, ah, oh, you're in a room with this, that, and the other, and you see, you know, this, you know, can on the on the shelf. What do you do? And like you kind of uh, because I, I didn't know how to do graphics back then uh, programmatically, so I uh, kind of had these like uh, prompts and so forth for. You know, doing basic math and and um, computer games. That was probably like fourth or fifth grade with QBasic. Oh, wow. um, and so then from there, you know, I kept just getting into it. And I think the the big thing for me was in high school. Um, I uh, ran uh, the high school newspaper's website, the A Blast. So at Annadale High School, um, the Annadale Adams, they had the A Blast, and I did the a PHP backend for their website where all of their editors could kind of log into it, post um, post whatever they wanted, like news articles and, and so forth. Um, and uh, that, that kind of really sealed the deal for me because that, that ended up being like a, um, you know, several thousand lines of code over, you know, a year or two in high school. 
that I ended up kind of writing from scratch. This was before the modern era of things like WordPress or uh, systems, like before they had systems in place for like managing uh, posted content and so forth. So I did like a, a diet garbage version of WordPress that uh, the high school newspaper used. And then that um, like from there, it's kind of when I decided to go into um, CS in the, um, when I was uh, at the University of Virginia for college. Can you talk about what what about the interaction with the computer was magical? Was it just having the pure control over what you wanted to create or basically commanding the computer to do things at will? Is there is there something that, that was really alluring to you at the, the first exposure? Kind of I mean so there is there is a lot of you know, kind of creative control that you could have, both with programming, but just with, with computers in general that I, uh, I guess, found found interesting. Um, certainly for, um, you know, while, while that was kind of early experience with programming, I also um, was interested in, like, computer games and having access to software and so forth. So there was, there was certainly a phase when I was younger with, um, you know, trying to, to do, um, you know, downloading and unlocking software. You know, getting getting around the the software key checks and all that stuff, and sort of like learning how to do a bit of like hacking. I think was was interesting. That's kind of what got me into the security space. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a good deal of creative control and uh, um, you know something that I I just uh, felt. Kind of like a natural at it, I suppose. Like I just kind of figured figured out how to make things do what I wanted on the computer, whether it be making the you know the word processor do what I wanted for the for the high school reports, or writing software to make the the website work. I just thought it was um, uh, you know alluring in that regard. The other thing was um, so I, I also uh, again going way back. Now that I remember it, uh, it must have been like seven or eight. There was this website called GeoCities, um, which was a, a subsidiary of, of Yahoo at the time that uh, had early iterations of um, website building, where they had this the like one of the first WYSIWYG editors for um, uh, websites. So you didn't have to code the HTML yourself, um, but uh, I kind of uh, initially I. Um, kind of ran a little website about, uh, well, video games. I was a, a Zelda fan back in the day, so Legend of Zelda. Um, and I uh, kind of made, um, I guess, what we might call a blog today. But uh, back then, just, you know, had some, some lame web pages talking about, um, you know, how to, like, strategies for, for um, beating various parts of, of Zelda games. And I think. Doing doing that and then ha uh, kind of seeing like oh yes I'm getting visitors and it looks the way that I want it and I kind of understand what's going on now that I've done it a few times I think it was also just kind of a sense of um, you know small accomplishments at least as a as a young person kind of getting into it um, that way so that's awesome so you mentioned you went to the University of Virginia you studied computer engineering and computer science there. Could you talk about maybe the some of the experiences there uh, in undergrad and maybe when uh, when and who? So when did you decide or realize that you wanted to continue in research or pursuing academic questions? And then 
uh, what people who was involved in kind of mentoring and, and steering you and guiding you throughout that time? Uh, sure, yeah. So I, um, I have an unusual trajectory. So my, so first of all, like when I was in college, there was the big uh, recession in like 2008-ish. And so, you know, starting salaries halved and people weren't getting jobs and so forth. And I, uh, um, you know, I guess this, it wasn't the primary reason, but I kept wondering like, oh, well, you know, maybe I can ride this out if I go to grad school. Um, and so I thought rather than getting, rather than trying to get a job, I'll just I'll go to grad school, get more credentials, and then be more competitive when I exit the market, or sorry, when I enter the job market. Um, and uh, you know, that was kind of one thing. The other was I was just kind of interested in the types of projects that professors were interested in at the time. So I um, remember do, doing this small project with an electrical engineering professor about uh, satellite internet for having sa um, internet accessibility in remote locations. Um, so we had this, um, you know, we met with a, a bunch of cool people from satellite companies to talk about how they work and how they deliver internet and then uh, you know, kind of built our own um, essentially like a, a DHCP or like internets, like IP address management for um, like satellite-based uh, internet systems and so that was kind of interesting and I, I just remember thinking like oh yeah you know this is this is kind of fun to work on something new that we don't really know how to solve yet um, and so I think that was that was kind of the the bigger issue it was kind of a realization that you know if I do research then I get to work on things that I want to I mean as long as I can justify it I suppose but there's a you know this this uh, idealized vision of you know, the freedom in what you what you're able to work on um, that uh, drew me initially that that well that and then writing out the recession um, the uh, you know academics tends to be anti-cyclical to um, like the business cycle so during recessions academic institutions tend to be tend to be like a, a nice sort of holding uh, holding zone. Uh, for people, um, you know, to while the while the business cycle recovers, so those two things kind of end up um, leading me to to graduate school. I um, the now that said, I, again, I had kind of this weird weird trajectory because I also didn't know exactly what I wanted to work on. I think uh, academics, in my opinion, make a mistake of focusing so much on depth, and then they try to make their whole career about trying to like publish or work in one specific area. And I, I never never really liked that. I still don't like that. But I think um, initially I didn't I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I ended up going to um, George Mason to uh, work with this professor that was doing um, some low-level system security work. And I thought, like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. And then I got this internship at MIT Lincoln Laboratory um, that related to system security and malware analysis and I thought like okay well this is also cool then I also while I was at Mason it was still kind of torn like do I actually want to do security work or do I want to do something else and so I also had this brief time where I thought I was going to do medical uh, medical informatics like oh how do I how do I study healthcare outcomes to um, you know resolve medical issues like 
solving kidney transplantation and so forth. And uh, so I kind of like spent a few months doing that. But then ultimately, after the internship, I thought like, okay, well, apparently I'm I'm uh, I'm competitive enough to kind of go into this internship. Maybe I'll just stay in this area. And so then I switched advisors, switched universities. I finished the master's degree at Mason. Then I went back to UVA for my PhD. And then convinced a software engineering professor to advise me, even though I was working on security stuff. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. There are, this is a very long-winded way of saying um, I was never really sure of a specific thing that I wanted to work on. I just liked the idea of freedom of uh, work in research. And then it just sort of, I worked on things that just kind of came up as opportunities. So there was the internship thing. Uh, this professor at UVA seems, you know, pretty cool. So I stuck around with him. He seemed supportive. I met random graduate students and then worked on other things that were totally unrelated to security. And then eventually they gave me a PhD and here we are. Excellent. That's awesome. So it sounds like a very diverse set of experiences and I wanted to lead into the uh, idea of adversity. So you worked in a lot of different areas and probably met a lot of different people. And I think depending on who you ask, some might say that grad school is a rigorous endeavor, it can be a rigorous endeavor filled with kind of like highs and lows, like a lot of other things in life. Uh, so could you speak to uh, maybe any setbacks or mistakes that kind of maybe shaped how you conduct your research today or kind of um, led you to a different way of thinking, you know, maybe for better or worse, and then related to that, can you maybe touch on, say, adversity and persistence as like ingredients for growth and then any tie-ins to imposter syndrome, which is something that I know I have struggled with and it seems to be more common than than some might think. Yeah, uh, sure. So, you know, in terms of like specific setbacks and failures, so I think, you know, again, one compared to the standard academic, I have this unusual view of how to do research. Right? Like I don't want to do specific focus and I don't want to have intellectual um, barriers or boundaries. Like I want to work on cool things and have it work out. And I think that, that the problem is that that ends up being kind of like, a, I don't know, unpopular as a, as a view among academics. And so there are definitely times where, you know, if I, if I ask security researchers and they look at my publications they'll say like well aren't you a software engineering researcher and then if i talk to software engineering folks they say well aren't you a security person and then i have a bunch of ai papers more recently and so when i talk to them they get confused too and like well aren't you like a system software person what are you doing and so like no one i don't seem to really fit into any specific like category of, of research and um like I, not that that's a setback um you know, to me, like I intend to kind of work in that way regardless. And, you know, if it doesn't work out too bad, but, as, you know, it does, you know, it is, it is kind of this, it can be demoralizing to sort of wonder like, oh, well, if no one thinks that I belong to their community, what am I going to do for tenure? Right? Like the, um, that's, I, I do kind of wonder like where, where that's going to end up. Uh, in terms of specific things though, my, uh, I think, my 
so there's there's definitely been times where I've had like streams of bad luck. So in 2018, this was after I finished my PhD, I submitted a bunch of papers and all of them got rejected. And so I just had this empty void of a year on my resume around 2018. Um, and I think that was a particularly demoralizing year because I didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't have any papers published that year. It was also difficult to find um, funding sources or even, you know, like uh, professors within that department that would support me as a postdoc since I was not, uh, not publishing anything. And so that was a particularly stressful, bad year. Uh, but I think, um, you know, what, what that's, that was a helpful moment because I mean, it, it, did, it did a couple of things. So first of all, like the papers all eventually got in like in subsequent years. And so while 2018 was empty, 2020, that was a good year, right? Because all of the things got in that year. And so, you know, it, it, uh, it definitely solidified this idea that, you know, the, the submission of a research artifact is more important than getting the publication later. Um, it also taught me about how um, you can't like target a paper to too distant a field, right? So when I some of those projects that got rejected as papers, we were trying too hard to fit it into a conference based on the next appropriate deadline. So I was I was thinking like oh well no problem we'll just change the introduction a little bit and I'll make this paper fit into this um, into this architecture conference and then rejected like no it's not within scope or we don't understand and so I think that kind of staying true to the work if you do a project don't just submit it somewhere for the sake of submitting it but try to find the you know, best place to actually submit it. Now, so that was, you know, that was one kind of big setback the year of 2018. But I think in general, people tend to, especially if they're, um, especially undergraduate students, don't get enough failures in their in their lives. And so what I, um, you know, there, there were a few smaller setbacks that in retrospect don't really matter, but at least at the time seemed like a big deal. Um, so I remember I, uh, I went to UVA but I got rejected from MIT, right? And I remember that being kind of a, a blow at the time because I thought like, oh yeah, this is such a great place, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I got, got rejected from MIT, so I went to UVA instead. I remember I uh, finished, I had like a 3.6 GPA, but then I got like one more B plus instead of an A minus. And so right before graduation, my GPA uh, dropped to like a 3.596, and that precluded me from getting one of the distinctions. So I had, you know, I graduated like with distinction instead of with high distinction. And I remember that, like, I mean, in retrospect, this is, you know, the most trivial thing in the world. And I remember kind of thinking, like, oh, this is such a, such a big blow. I'm never going to, never going to make it because of this 0 0.004 GPA difference. Um, I remember. I didn't get any internships while I was an undergrad. I, uh, you know, instead took the Craigslist approach to advertising like furniture moving services uh, because I couldn't, well, well, both because I didn't really apply to any internships, but also because I didn't land any as an undergrad. 
Um, and so there were a few things as an undergrad, right? So the GPA drop, I didn't get into the, to the school that I wanted. There was some scholarship that I got uh, declined to receive. I didn't get any internships. I was uh, like, again, like not a, not a huge deal in retrospect where these things are in the noise and don't matter. But I think if, um, if there's one kind of general point, it's that you know, every, every failure you have is um, a story that you can tell later in an interview, right? So um, now when I, when, I, like, when I interview either prospective students or when I was in industry interviewing people for, for real jobs, um, you know, I, I kind of always look for, can they describe a failure that they had and what they do differently now that they learned from it? So, you know, both with the rejected internships and not like uh, not applying for enough of them. I don't think that I at the time, you know, again because because I was worried about trivial things like oh you know is my GPA going to be point zero zero four higher or not. Um, I got really really frustrated and um, like uh, overworked by rejections for things like internships and job interviews. So much so that I wouldn't even bother applying, and I'd say things like well. I don't need this internship. I'll just do this Craigslist thing and I'll get paid to move furniture. Or um, I don't need this internship. I'll just apply for summer classes and that'll be just as good. And I think that it, um, like not having enough failures early on and sort of, it will train me to kind of worry about things that were too trivial. And then I think in retrospect, I like I could have, I could have done a better job with like a, I guess taking career risks, like oh, it's okay if I get rejected from an internship. Just keep trying, and you'll eventually get one. Or I didn't really, um, uh, you know, take as much risk in uh, doing doing like um, enough for a for a job search, and that's kind of why I ended up applying for um, like weird, at least in retrospect, weird universities for graduate school. Coming out of UVA, it would be it's an unusual move to go to Mason. I kind of did that, um, and I I, uh, I don't regret it now. But at the time, uh, you know, it was sort of like a view that was a move that was viewed as kind of weird. Now, I want to get back to um, kind of general lessons here. You mentioned like imposter syndrome and um, like persistence for for growth. I, I mentioned kind of these these sort of trivial things that I got worried about that were sort of failures or setbacks to me at the time, and that's because I was uncomfortable with putting myself in positions where I would experience failure or rejection. And so again, I think I mentioned this already. I got trained to worry too much about trivial things, but frankly. Like imposter syndrome doesn't go away, right? There's not a day that goes by currently where I don't feel like a complete idiot at least one time during the day. And that's that's normal. Everyone feels that way. There's no there's no like single genius person that uh, never feels imposter syndrome. If they if they don't, then they're they're not, in my opinion, they're not like stretching themselves enough. Um, so imposter syndrome, totally normal. I think that that is, that is what creates pressure to make you better. You know, if I could go back in time, if I had not worried about imposter syndrome and risks of failure and so forth, I feel like I would have taken more risks and stretched myself more um, than, I, than I ended up doing as an undergrad. Um, I, and so that's, that's one thing that I would have, would have changed is, uh, you know, 
being aware of imposter syndrome and being okay with it, I think that would have led me to kind of take more risks and be okay with more as, a, as an undergraduate student. And I might have changed how things ended up, um, you know, kind of later on. Now that said, uh, all the, you, in, in accounting for imposter syndrome, like you are going to encounter and experience failures and those are important. I mentioned already they are I, I would look for them in interviews. Um, I would look for people to explain, well, what failures have you had and what have you done different now? The, um, the uh, like having, being able to, to um, look back on an experience and say, well, even though I failed, here's how I'm gonna do different next time. I think that's what pressures a person to be better and, and achieve more of their potential. Um, and so I, you know, Posture syndrome, totally normal. I, uh, I experience it every day. Everyone does, that's, that's um, like a reasonable person. But that's, that's really the, the key to making you better. If you experience a failure or a setback, or if you're comparing yourself against others and saying like, oh, well, why don't I have this experience that they, that they have? Um, like that's all totally fine. And that's what, that is what will pressure you to change your situation and become better overall. Um, you know, I, I mentioned already, right, there was that 2018 year where I had all the papers rejected, but then they were eventually published once I kind of learned, like, okay, I shouldn't be trying to change the paper's topic to fit to a specific conference. Um, I should find the right conference to submit it to, and that's going to work out better. I got rejected from a bunch of internships, but, um, you know, eventually the experience taught me to interview better, right? So interviewing is now a skill, you know, interviewing for a job. Now I'm much more comfortable with it. I even had this guy at Google that was interviewing me telling me like, Kevin, you seem a lot more calm than the normal candidate does. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, because I failed a bunch of interviews already. What can, what can go wrong? Um, uh, but even, even more recently, like I, I've had a stream of rejected proposals recently, but the thing is like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the colleagues, even though they've had successful proposals, they're looking at me and saying, well, why don't I submit that many proposals, um, like as many proposals as Kevin, uh, Kevin does. And I think, you know, the, the imposter syndrome thing will, will, will help you become a better person. But the other, the other thing to, to, um, to remember is whatever you see about somebody else's resume or achievement is only the best thing that they want you to see. And so what I, um, the, what I recommend is to remember for every item that a person lists on their resume, there's probably something else that they can't list that you can, right? And so now, like, yes, I've had a, I've had some some rejected proposals recently, but other people are looking at me and saying, like, oh, well, you know, how does how does Kevin get invited onto so many proposal submissions? Um, how is Kevin having so many ideas to submit proposals in the first place? Because others are looking at that and saying, like, well, even though they're rejected now, they're going to get accepted at some point in the future. And so, you know, even though I'm looking at others and saying like, ah, oh, well, you know, this person got a, got a proposal accepted, you know, they probably didn't submit as many. And so they're looking at me and saying, and wondering, well, how do I craft as much proposal text as Kevin does? Similarly, um, the, so, you know, don't, don't uh, look at somebody else's resume with, a, with that perspective, that there's something else that there's, there's a gap that they're not showing you um, and they're only presenting the best that they that they can. 
what I try to do in, in classes that I teach these days, at some point I go through a lecture on a resume of failures where I explicitly go through all of the things that didn't work out in my career that, you know, don't make it onto my resume, but, um, you know, ultimately uh, are kind of failures or setbacks like uh, that, that, I, um, that I've learned from. And that, that uh, I don't know, you, you, you um, I believe that that exercise is useful for students to see. Right? Like, oh, here's, here's a list of explicit failures that didn't work out. The real resume, you're only looking at the things that did. Everybody has a type of resume of failures that they just don't show you. And I think it's important to, to kind of keep that, thing in, that uh, type of uh, thinking in mind. Um, the... Uh, let's see, any other thoughts that I have here? So, you know, in my resume of failures, I, I mentioned the 2018 with the bad publications. I mentioned being rejected from a bunch of internship applications. You know, one of the reasons that I ended up working with a software engineering professor was because um, none of the security faculty at UVA wanted to work with me. And so I, I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? Like, even though I have, you know, this internship from, from MIT Lincoln Laboratory, you know, what am I going to do? Um, so I ended up working with this software engineering professor. Um, ultimately, one of the reasons that I went to UVA back, uh, like after leaving Mason, was uh, also because I didn't really didn't really get into anywhere else, right? So I uh, they sort of took me in as a as a courtesy, I guess, because um, I couldn't get into anywhere else, right? So there's but you know a bunch of like failures or setbacks that along the way, um, you know. Again, at the time, were kind of like these frustrating failures. But I guess looking back, were these, as you're, as you're putting it, ingredients for for growing. It makes you a better person to kind of go through these things and learn from them. The um, the uh, if you haven't experienced failure or setback, then you're like, in my opinion, you're not exposing yourself to opportunities to to make you grow uh, and become better. Um, my, I guess my final thought there is graduate school is an endurance log, right? You're going to experience failures, and especially in computer science where we have, in my opinion, a more negative scientific community. Paper reviews are more negative or more toxic. Um, people tend to be less diplomatic when they're, you know, criticizing or offering feedback to others. And so, you know, it is, it is a bit of an endurance log, but again, that's, that's, what, that's what fosters growth in an individual student. So if you make it through that and learn from all of those setbacks, you're going to be a stronger person for it. I think that's, you know, kind of a critical thing to keep in mind. Um, failure leads to or, you know, fosters uh, success. Those are all great points. I like those a lot. I think there's also something that's a little bit unnatural about, like, withholding say like negative experiences experiences or adversity and i think that's something that unfortunately plagues social media today where you fail to consider that like you mentioned you're seeing the best pieces of everyone's life and experience and i think there's a probably an equal and opposite opportunity for connection if you kind of expose and, and make yourself vulnerable to the failures that you've had so thank you for sharing all of those things uh, i'd like to turn now to maybe some more of the technical aspects of your work, uh, still maybe at a high level, but uh, starting with security and then maybe discussing a little bit about brain imaging and AI. So your thesis was mostly around uh, the debugging transparency problem. So in pursuit of 
uh, resilient systems in the face of, say, stealthy malware or malware that can subvert uh, detection and, and maliciously execute in a time where an analysis environment is, is not detected. Uh, could you speak to kind of the, so again, at a high level, the relationship between the need for secure systems and, and human nature? So, um, you know, humans being evil, wanting to do bad things to a system, wanting to uh, perturb or do adverse malicious things to other people's information, and then related to that, the uh, asymmetry between offensive and defensive security, where it only takes poking one hole in a system for a malicious takeover, where on the defensive side, you need to basically ensure there's air tightness in every possible vulnerability. Yeah, sure. So the uh, there's this notion of you know, what, what I might call the, the the law of perpetual employment and security, or the security arms race, basically that, that there's this, this key driving force in the security community, which is um, there is a consistent ratcheting between offense and defense um, where they're always trying to one-up and best each other, right? So, you know, the, the, um, any, any defense principle that we come up, now, come up with now will eventually get subverted by some creative thought that an attacker has later on. And so, you know, security is never about can I eliminate all threats, but how long is my defensive measure going to last? Um, you know, is it weeks, years, hours? Like, what, what's the scale of the um, defensive technique that I put into place? Um, because, you know, eventually I, you have to assume the adversary is going to get in or they're going to subvert your system, and it's just a matter of time or, or resources that's, that might be available to the attacker. And so I think, um, you know, what, what that's led to is, again, this sort of ratcheting up uh, of, of each other, and that's led to... It, in my view, a, a uh, consistently increase, uh, increasing complexity of, of security principles. So, you know, back in the olden days, you would just kind of run the binary, you know, you'd run your program and, you know, hope nothing bad would happen. And then there was the stack overflow vulnerability where the attacker could make, you know, a small change to a program input and inject their own code. And then, so that was, you know, offense taking over. Well, then the defensive community came around and said, no, 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 we're going to have um, uh, uh, stack canaries. And so we're going to like put a secret value in the program memory so that if the attacker changes anything in the memory and they corrupt that value, then we're just going to quit. And so that's canary values. And so then that's the defensive community responding to stack overflows. Well, then the... the, um, the you know, offense community came back and, and said, well, you know, rather than trying to um, to uh, um, put malicious code into memory, we're going to uh, only change like one very specific value. We're not going to overwrite the whole program memory with new instructions. We're going to put in a new return address. We're going to put in one little value um, to tell the computer you know, here's this other code that's already in the system. We're going to use that instead. So now you're not introducing new code. You're introducing locations of code that are already in the system. And if you string those together, well, then you can make your malicious behavior emerge. And then that's, so that's return-oriented programming. You're not re injecting any malicious code anymore. You're just telling it 
well, where 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 is code that's already in the system that um, you know if I execute it in the uh, in the right order, well then I can make some malicious behavior emerge, right? So there's a constant like increase in the level of complexity and depth that each party has to understand. And on the defensive side, what that leads to is you know um, things like decision fatigue, like oh well, which thing do I deploy, and how do I know if something bad is happening now when there's so much you know, stuff that has to be um, accounted for. Um, and so I, I, I think, uh, well, and then in addition, there's kind of a, um, an issue of um, like volume of data. How do I make a decision when I have so much data um, in addition to so many tools to choose, choose between? So I think there is kind of this, this increasing need for a focus on um, like studying the human when they're they're looking at um, you know defending a system or operating a system in the presence of an adver uh, adversary, um, so focusing both on um, analyses of large volumes of like instrumentation data that might be collected by a security technique, and also understanding how what's the most effective way for a human to deploy or decide about um, security tools or when a threat is occurring. So kind of focusing on that kind of human angle and decision-making in a security context, I think is really important. Um, now, the, um, you know, how, how this relates back to some of the early thesis work that I did. So I, um, again, originally I kind of followed this path because of this internship that I had at, um, at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. They um, were interested in acquiring instrumentation data for programs and systems that were running in a way that couldn't be tampered with. So even if an adversary broke in and like completely owned the operating system, was there still a way to provide faithful, useful execution data? And you know, we, we built a few prototype systems. We you know, learned a lot about um, developing what, what we now have is uh, trusted execution environments, so things like T's. Um, but uh, you know, part of the, and that that's still an interesting direction to me, right? Where there's a few other things like before I was looking at malware and the analysis of malware samples to understand, well, how do I characterize this malicious behavior if that sample itself subverts detection or instrumentation? How do I make an instrumentation platform that works when this malware sample is trying to evade detection or has compromised the, the operating system already? I think that's that's still an interesting direction, um, kind of what you can do with that to um, to um, analyze uh, and collect data about systems that are in that in that type of setup. Um, I've we've also kind of taken this to things like cloud services. So if I'm Amazon or Microsoft Azure, how do I tell if there's an adversarial guest in my virtual machine environment? that might escape and compromise other paying customers that are using a co-hosted or um, uh, co-tenants or multi-tenants virtual machine. Um, and so there's yeah, a bunch of things that we can apply that type of thing to. I'm also interested in uh, what we can do on the machine learning side. So there's, you know, mal like traditional malware and, and uh, attack software runs as like a normal CPU program, but with the sort of recent renaissance of, of um, like AI systems that all use GPU software or even specialized things like TPUs or FPGAs, what can we do to analyze and instrument that type of software now? And so I've, I've uh, recently become interested in kind of 
um, using the same principles to secure hardened GPU software so that then we can have a grip on um, protecting sensitive machine learning models that currently are mostly unprotected in the, the GPU memory. Um, and so those are, those are all kind of like interrelated. But this prompted me um, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe wonder like, well, there's so much data and so much setup and so much stuff that needs to be collected and accounted for if we're building this type of transparent, faithful instrumentation approach. How is a human even going to use this at scale? And it got me wondering about the the way that we're having that we're that like the security community often thinks like, well, I, I have this prototype or I can make proofs about this software working in this way and forgetting about the fact that if we want it to have impact in deployments, a human needs to operate and use it. So it just got me got me thinking about um, what we can do with uh, yeah, kind of humans in the loop as well. And so there's this other kind of more recent uh, direction that I've that I've um, thought about, which is um, brain imaging. So, uh, as an objective basis, can we understand what in a person's brain is responsible for controlling various uh, engineering tasks? And while I while I have kind of this security angle to a lot of my early research. Um, where we started with this brain imaging stuff was on the software engineering side. So, you know, can I understand what's going on in a person's brain as they're completing a particular engineering task, like debugging code, assessing a, a merge request, or um, like a comprehending what a particular passage of code is doing? Um, the, so we, we designed this, uh, these, this sequence of, of human studies where we did um, functional MRI images. We had people lay down in an MRI tube and we showed them, like in front of their view as they were undergoing a brain scan, we showed them various programming tasks. Um, and again, that was some of it was things like code comprehension, like, oh, can you tell what the value of this variable is going to be if I give you this input? There were other things like, oh, here's a GitHub like merge request. Would you accept or reject this change? Um, we had uh, English prose variants, like, oh, well, can you understand what this passage of English text means? And we kind of compared and contrasted all the all the the different um, uh, pairs of activities to kind of get an understanding. Like, oh, is are these programming tasks more or less like uh, English editing tasks, or are they more or less like um, uh, mathematical tasks or reasoning tasks, or are they more like visual manipulation or mental rotation tasks? So we had a bunch of interesting findings and in, uh, interesting software engineering work um, that uh, where we had this initial objective measure of um, uh, what people are thinking about when they're when they're doing these tasks. Uh, so number number of interesting findings there. I'm interested in taking that back to the security land. Like, oh well, what now that we have this fundamental understanding of brain activity in software engineering tasks, what are the analogs in the security space? Like what are the um, things that a security practitioner has to do and can we understand what's going on in the brain there? This again leads, it leads back to things like how do we design training materials? If we know that the regions of the brain responsible for doing some type of engineering task is more closely related to a prose or a mathematics task 
Um, what does that tell us about the type of training that we should be giving people to make those portions or regions of the brain um, uh, basically stronger? Like that's a very loose, uh, loose interpretation. We're trying to tie this back to, to training for software engineering and then uh, also for, um, in my case, for uh, security, um, uh, security related tasks and, and training. Interesting. So question about, so the brain imaging and you, you kind of touched on AI there as well. It seems like large language models are, are taking hold as somewhat productive in a lot of areas, but also, you know, kind of opening this can of worms for exposing biases that we have in society. And um, so that there's, again, an interesting duality, I think, there. So just to, to linger on the, the fMRI stuff, do you think that that is a sufficient technology for kind of mapping human decision-making, or is, is there still like a missing piece uh, for, for something to be more comprehensive in that regard? Uh, so, the, the beauty, the, the reason that we like the, the fMRI stuff is, and not just fMRI, we've also done FNIRS, which is functional near-infrared spectros uh, spectroscopy. That's where you shine lights into a, pe into a person's skull. Oh, wow. And then it's kind of like pulse oximetry. The degree to which the color of the light is reflected um, tells you how much oxygenation is, is there, right? So you can get a picture of, you know, how much oxygen is consumed over time by each portion of a person's brain by using FNIRS. And then fMRI gives you a more detailed view because it involves um, a magnetic field which can penetrate deeper than light can. And so there's uh, multiple modalities for getting objective views of a person's brain activity as they're completing various tasks. And we like that because it gives an objective view. Part of the, part of the pushback that we get, though, people wonder, like, well, why can't you just give a person a task and then see how well they do that task? Like, if I give a person a programming task, I can measure how long does it take them and, and or how accurately do they meet the specification given by the task. And that, you know, we do a lot of that too. Those are, you know, behavioral or, or functional assessments, but they don't necessarily give you a why. Like, what is the explanation under the hood that drives the person to do better or worse? And is there anything that we can do differently? Again, in training or with other, with uh, some other type of intervention, what can we do to make that make a person that performs more poorly? more like the person that performs better. All right, and so assessing expertise in an objective way is kind of one of the reasons that we like doing these, um, these uh, brain, brain imaging studies. Um, but, you know, with, again, with that said, it's, it's not complete in that it still doesn't give you, like it, it's a, kind of a very low level view of what's going on. We can't, we, we don't yet have like a, a perfect mapping from brain activity back to like specific task completion. The two things need to happen together, right? We give a person a functional task, we scan their brain while they're doing it. We still look at the outcome of the task that they complete. How well did they do it? How long did they take? You know, that, those traditional things. Um, but uh, so we, we need both of those things together. You can't just have brain imaging and say like, oh yes, you know, we, we understand the brain. Um, there's uh, still a lot going on there. The other part is um, the, uh, you it there's a a lot of um, popularity in using like a s survey instruments like oh is 
you know, do, do you think that you are more likely to understand a program if we do syntax highlighting? Or, you know, what is your opinion on the use of C versus Python? There's a lot of kind of subjective survey instruments that people will do for these types of studies. And those are also, they're interesting and illuminating, but again, they, they introduce biases. Um, people will often say that they think one thing will work better, even though it uh, doesn't. Um, the the uh, There's also like the yours is better fallacy, where if I tell a participant, you know, I wrote this new tool, how do you like it? They're more likely to say that they like the tool, even if it's worse than or no no better than um, some other alternative. Um, and so the you know, we want to avoid all those biases. So we like these objective views. We can do these functional instruments, but then they don't have that explanatory why power, like what's going on or what can we change or instrument. Um, so there's a um, it's the there's a lot of different things that you need if you're going to understand something as complicated as a human and how they make decisions. Um, you know, in addition, in in the scientific community, we're I mean, kind of limited. We since we want to really know things for sure and for certain, often it boils down questions into things that are more like um, broader or um, like uh, things that we can very much pair out. Like if I, if I apply uh, syntax highlighting, a person might be, you know, X percent more, more uh, effective at answering program comprehension questions that relates to variables. So they end up being these sort of very specific questions that don't uh, that don't have a lot of like high impact value. And I think um, what that what that means is we have to be um, willing to to accept essentially like limitations in the types of claims that we can make or in the types of studies that we can do. Um, and that, you know, what that means is designing a lot of different studies that answer different questions where you, you essentially, you boil down what the human is doing into something that's, that's very like binary yes, no, like, are they better in a statistically significant manner or not? And to what degree? Um, but, the, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a, a number of different components that go into understanding human behavior and human decision making. Um, I'm by no means an expert. Incidentally, we we often work with a lot of psychologists um, to to set up these types of studies and make sure that we're not like uh, doing entirely incorrect or or silly things when we're dealing with human subjects. Um, and so often the, the it ends up being this interesting like. Uh, challenge of communicating across expertise. The psychologists know how to work with humans. You know, we as computer scientists, we know how to um, design relevant programming or, or um, uh, like software engineering challenges or security challenges, but we don't know how to work with humans. And so we have to like bridge the gap to turn what we care about into something that the psychologist community understands. Like, oh, mental rotation, like, uh, can you, you know, can you visualize your tree structure as though it were a 3D shape that you're rotating in your mind? It's like it's, it's this interesting kind of communication barrier that also plays into um, challenges when we're understanding um, how humans make decisions. That's really fascinating. I think there's like a, just to comment on that before moving on, like, I don't know if the right word is some kind of like entangled chicken and egg problem, but 
you you kind of alluded to this idea of like an introspection gap where you can't trust someone's assessment of how they made a decision or arrived at a conclusion. And so it actually happened to me the other day. I like remembered something, but I don't know what caused me to remember it. Or it, it happens often where you kind of go down a chain of thoughts and then you're kind of like, how did I get here? So yeah. I do wonder with, with kind of the, the, the state that AI is in and the pace at which it's evolving, kind of how, for better or worse, AIs can can in some ways know ourselves better than we know ourselves and maybe uh, in a productive way bridging bridging that gap to to help us understand how we again make decisions yeah I so I, well the um, that is a good point so well so the the brain imaging stuff we're not we're not using it as an approximation for like AI it's more about understanding human behavior and, and so forth now you know there there is like a like a well, there's like a separate AI component to my to my own work that deals with like well what what can we learn from like software to help humans make better decisions about software the uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right. There's there's definitely this gigantic introspection gap, certainly in the the brain imaging stuff. Even if we were to apply deep learning models to help us predict, like oh, you know, what's the what's the um, you know, if I if I give a person a particular software engineering task, what regions of their brain is is going to light up? Uh, the kind of uh, when you have that that amount of data, right? You have you know millions and millions, hundreds of millions of voxels. Uh, worth of brain imaging data where you just sort of don't understand how am I going to even process this um, but the the I guess to, to, to go back to, to AI and um, like challenges there I think there's this definite problem of um, like uh, like well explainability right so um, having uh, a lot of the the recent state of the art work you've mentioned language models things like births and 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 so forth they um involve deep learning models that are just not well explained we just don't know how they work or why they work or what patterns they're having you know one of the one of the other things that that uh, would potentially be interesting you know i've thought about this a little bit tying this back to the brain imaging part you know is there any way of learning how to explain a complicated neural network um, in a way that a human can understand by kind of leveraging some of this brain imaging or objective uh, objective medical imaging study uh, methodology. So, you know, if I, if I, for instance, you know, give, uh, like if I, if I, let's say, make changes to a neural network and then show the outcome to a person and then understand in their brain how are they thinking about the outputs of each of the neural networks? Maybe that lends itself to helping me design um, neural networks in a way that are easy, more easily interpretable by, by, a, by a human. That's really interesting. And so actually, John Carmack, who is a, knows a thing or two about programming, has, has said that some of, the, some of the missing pieces of AI, so definitely along the line of explainability, but I think roughly his quote was the the things that are missing in ai can probably probably be written down on a napkin and then once those things are known i mean definitely an audacious claim but it's john carmack so we'll see how it goes but um sure. all very fascinating so i wanted to shift a little bit to uh getting 
towards uh, like wrapping up here, but uh, simplicity versus complexity. So it seems like there is a, a, obviously a spectrum between simplicity and complexity, and oftentimes there are both simple things that are beautiful, and then there's beautiful things that are also complex. So can you speak to kind of, uh, if you have a new research problem, what your standard approach is? Do you kind of consider Occam's razor where uh, basically don't make things more complex than they need to be or kind of can you discuss how you maybe build up an intuition for pursuing a new problem or so the uh, so I guess well so the first thing I'll say is the simplicity is the, the hallmark of good design and so we would always want to favor solutions that are simple and elegant and frankly you know my experience with with doing research the one the things that get published are the ones that, that end up having um, kind of like intuitive explanations, right? So for instance, a lot of this brain imaging work, you know, there's there's a huge amount of complexity in, in analyzing data and doing statistics and false discovery rate correction and blah, 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 um, The uh, that the software engineering community is just not going to understand. And so what we had to do was to really boil it down into these kind of more like a simplistic questions. And in fact, I, I already mentioned this, right? Like. Uh, a lot of what we do with human subject research, we have to kind of boil down into these more like simplistic binary claims that are that tends to be um, hyper specific and kind of in a related light. What we had to do was spend time thinking about, well, like how do we how do we position these findings in a way that is understandable and engaging and also still true, right? Like the um, and so we we um, you know come came up with these kind of uh, quips from. Um, like a conventional wisdom, like oh, you know, math. Like, is math the same as computer science and programming? And you know, like, the results will surprise you. Read this paper. Um, the uh, the and so we, we kind of positioned it in those sort of more simplified terms because at the end of the day, right, like the being able to like interpret something that's too complicated you know, people just aren't going to understand or use, right? And that's that's also, by the way, kind of a general approach to thinking about about research. Um, you know, if you if you discover the cure for cancer, but you can't explain it or convey it or convince any anybody else to use it, then the world isn't a better place, right? And so the um, I think, you know, first of all, regardless of how like complicated or technical a research project is. I like to think a lot about how you would get a big picture narrative or positioning so that you can c explain it and convey it into uh, to a broader audience that will you know understand it and interpret it more easily. Um, now, you know, when I approach a new research problem and I try to you know, think about, you know, I guess I don't really think actively about Occam's razor or or simplicity. Often, what we do as academics like a, a lot of the time that we spend on research is just like thinking is this the right problem to be pursuing is this the right solution to this problem and um you know i think that that ends up i think fostering simplicity more than complexity right so if i think you know if i, if I think about this um this brain imaging work, for instance, there's a, you know, again, we, we can go really in depth about like electrons and 
hydrogen atom spin and all that stuff, but that that isn't really helping us with answering software engineering or, or security challenges where we want to think what we actually care about isn't the technical detail. I don't really care about brain imaging or human studies. I don't really care about trusted execution environments and transparent malware analysis. There is some other driving problem that you have to, that, that is supposed to be motivating you. So I don't care about the brain imaging technique, but I care about what it can be used for um, in the software engineering space. Like I care about making um, training for developers more effective so that they can produce fewer defects. I care about making humans, human operators better at operating safety critical systems, right? And that's, you know, thinking about it from that perspective and saying like, well, you know, what do I need to do to achieve that goal? Maybe it involves some brain imaging so that I can understand things or look at a particular intervention. But that, you know, doing brain imaging for the sake of brain imaging or doing malware for the sake of malware analysis, like I, that's not what's supposed to, in my opinion, that's not what's supposed to be driving a, a researcher. It's more, well, what's the, what are the big questions or problems that, uh, that this method or technique might help, help out with? Um, you know, as, as, another, as another example there, uh, even recently, one of the other things in this kind of malware analysis space that's come up has been malware summarization. So can we use language models um, to understand or summarize what a particular malware sample is doing? So could I use a language model trained on a bunch of malware samples that have been reverse engineered already to say, given this new malware sample that I haven't seen before, can I use this language model to tell me what will it do if I execute it? And, you know, the, the trouble, I was been kind of stuck in this rut for a while thinking about how you would measure the effectiveness of the technique there. And frankly, the, the AI community, the summarization community, um, use internal metrics, things like the blue score, which is basically the fraction of words that overlap between what your model produces and what the ground truth was for the same sample. And that's tempting, you know, we end up publishing a bunch of papers, there's AI papers every year, they're like, oh, look, my blue score is like 2% higher. Like, oh, look how good that is. And you, get a, and you get a paper for that. But that doesn't really help us address what the bigger problem is. I don't care if I get two more percent blue score. What I care about is, can the human make use of whatever the model is producing to do some important downstream task, like um, are they going to be faster at analyzing malware now that they have this additional summarization thing? Are they going to be more accurate at identifying potential threats if there's some unknown stealthy binary that they're um, analyzing currently? So I, I, uh, um, it, it's easy, especially for, for graduate students, to get caught in this um, trap of focusing too much on kind of technical minutiae and like, ah, oh, well, how do I, like, how do I add more Greek letters to my machine learning model to make it better? And instead we have to focus on well, what, what's the big question or problem that you might use all those extra Greek letters for, but that, you know, what's the, like the big motivation ends up being, in my opinion, kind of a more important part of, um, of uh, getting research done and then also communicating it later once it's finished. Interesting. 
I guess. So, possibly related to that, could you speak to the role that, so this might be like a three-pronged question, so the role that creativity plays in your research efforts, and then maybe in what ways do like hobbies or extracurricular activities kind of um, help supplement your thinking for research problems, or is there a certain uh, routine that you have for refining your ideas? Some people like to think and walk or think and run. I've heard people dream and think. Is there any kind of similar practice that you have or find mm. use in? Yeah, well, so research is the repeated application of creativity in the face of failure. So you're going to try something, it's not going to work. Based on those failures, you learn from them and try something new, right? And it's kind of like kind of like with career building and adversity and setbacks. Research is kind of like a, a small miniature version of that. It's like, oh, well, I, I tried analyzing the malware, but it all, like 30% of them failed because of this thing that happened. And so, you know, the this you know shortcoming in the analysis or, or whatever it might be. And so I think that that's, that's a lot of what research is. You test a hypothesis, maybe it works out or it doesn't work out, and then you kind of refine things, and you eventually get to a point where you have some like new insight that leads you to try something new that ends up, that ends up working. So, you know, for instance, with this, um, uh, with this, um, so with, with this malware analysis part, you know, there, there was this initial insight that got me into transparent malware analysis, which was, you know, we, we noticed that there were, there were these commercial malware analysis vendors where you would give them a lot of malware samples and they would try to automatically analyze them and, you know, 30 to 40% of them would fail because the malware samples were detecting their analysis environment. So like, oh, they, their automated analysis would spin up a virtual machine, they'd put the sample in the VM, and then it just wouldn't work because the sample would detect the VM. And so that initially is what led me to you know, thinking about, well, how do I make an automatic analysis system that lets you instrument and analyze malware transparently so that it can't tell the difference between your analysis system and your um, uh, and your uh, the normal victim computer uh, or victim system. And so that, that's kind of what led me into this idea of doing transparent analysis. And the issue, the, like kind of the, like the insight there was, well, you know, if we could uh, have a place to execute code where nothing about the OS is affected or changed, there's no program that can be um, measured or detected by the malware sample, if we had an environment to do instrumentation kind of separate or outside of where the malware is executing, well then we could do a better job with transparency. And so having this insight that, oh, well we could build a trusted execution environments or we could use like an FPGA to instrument the PCI bus or whatever. Like all these interesting, we had all these interesting insights that came up as a result of that problem. Malware samples, a third of them fail to execute automatically. Why don't we have some approach that lets us um, take advantage of uh, like some type of external or isolated execution environments to do this type of instrumentation. Uh, so that's kind of like an, an example like, the, well, there's this failure. Um, 
to execute these samples that led to an insight that led to a technique that was you know successful. Um, you know that that's that's kind of how I how I think about research that you're gonna exp you're gonna see some type of problem or failure. Maybe it's in the literature. Maybe it's through your experimentation. Maybe it's something that your advisor gives you, and you kind of have to like sit there and iterate and think for a while. Like, well, what can I what can I use to kind of get around or sidestep the current problem? And then eventually you end up with um, like a a project that like successfully solves a new problem that um, that you started with. Now, as for like uh, tying in other things, I think it's important to have periods, extended periods of time for thinking, right? So I think like a lot of the reasons that people sometimes think like, oh, professors, what do they do all day? They sit around and eat bonbons. And like, that's not, I mean, th that's not untrue, I suppose, right? Like you kind of have to sit around and think like, well, how do I get around this problem? And you kind of go through in your mind, well, what are papers or techniques or observations that I've seen before? Can they tie back to this problem that I'm currently experiencing? Um, and so there's a lot of just like, yeah, I need a few hours to just think and come up with something that I can try next. And so I try to have like extended periods of time that just aren't meetings um, where I can just have like a chunk of time to think about things, maybe write things out, um, you know, that type, of, that type of approach. My other, my other thought is, um, uh, you know, do, do a lot of, do a lot of writing uh, in, in addition to reading. I think it's important to, to see, can you even form a reasonable logical argument for the thing that you want to try? Because um, if you can't, well, maybe that's an indication that you're trying something that's too complicated or you need to think more about how you would, um, how you would do it. If you can't explain it, then, you know, maybe it's not worth pursuing. Now there are these, you know, other things like oh, you know, hobbies, how to lose time back. I, I think for some researchers that ends up working pretty well. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I play a little bit of piano. I used to be really into weightlifting, but those like those never really fostered inspiration for doing research. Um, some people will have personal connections, like uh, the um, the uh, uh, if if there's some incidents in their life maybe that motivates them or prompts them to to do good work um the you know for instance there's there's a like a few researchers uh down in down in florida actually that um they like came up with this sort of automatic voice call for police encounters so if a if a, a police officer pulls you over on the road they had this te this technology where they would automatically form a link between the officer's phone and the person in the car so that they could basically have like a Skype call first before the officer would approach. And that's, uh, you know, that was at least fostered in part by, um, you know, issues with, uh, you know, police encounters that may not, may not have ended in a, in a particularly positive light. There have definitely been researchers that kind of started with that experience and said, well, that motivates me. How do I solve this or what can I do to make this better? Um, so there are cases of people having personal experiences in their life that leads to some interesting research outcome. Um, that hasn't happened as much for me. Um, so like I said, I, I used to be into, like, into um, like weightlifting when I was in college. Um, I eventually had like an injury in my back, and so there was a period where part of why I wanted to get into medical informatics was, you know, all of the things that I had to go through in resolving this, you know, essentially chronic back pain now. 
um, kind of dealing dealing with that and kind of designing techniques around it. It's not like I, I don't know, kind of. There was an initial maybe spark there, but I, it never really played out for me. That's a, kind of a case by case basis. What I will say though, for graduate students, one of the things that I've noticed among like the really like top echelon successful graduate students is that they all have this kind of like X factor. They have this passionate side project or side thing that they really care about that they can explain. Uh, I developed my own programming language because there wasn't anything that did what I needed it to do, so I built this whole language. Or I, um, I uh, maybe I um, had this this uh, project where I um, wanted to to I needed to compile the the Linux kernel because I needed a specific real-time version that could work on you know the, the Raspberry Pi or something. Like every super like top echelon graduate student that I've noticed tends to have that type of like X factor thing where they can explain a grossly detailed project or side project that they have um, that really that, that that sort of keeps them motivated. And even if that doesn't lead to a specific research project, having that passion and an ability to say, I need this thing, I don't have a solution, so I'm going to build it myself, I think is a, a really um, a good sign or a good like a uh, experience to have if you're a if you're a new graduate student. Um, so, related to that, professors are notoriously busy. You probably get inundated with emails on a daily basis. So, could you speak a little bit about how you manage your signal to noise ratio? Like, do you? have special strategies for focusing or certain kind of news sources or literature that you follow? And then is there a, a specific kind of project or research that you like to follow, maybe not directly related to your own? I, not so much. So, you know, how do I deal with things? I think, you know, right now I, put a lot of time and regularity of the schedule. So I have a routine of trying to meet with students once or twice a week. I try to um, keep that consistent. I try to make explicit time for um, for, stu for students to, um, that, and that, that helps them, but also helps me with kind of making sure that I kind of always know what I need to do each week. And I think that helps quite a bit. I try to have like a, um, certain practices on um, with uh, like email, for instance, like I use a client called Mutt, which is a terminal email client, and that just you know makes it faster to read and deal with emails, and I don't have to you know log into Outlook and you know deal with the slow interface and all that stuff. I just instead um, make it like I, I kind of adopt a set of tools that kind of simplify things and make it kind of easier for me to know what I need to do. Um, I try to avoid complicated UI tools. I'll stay on the command line. I'll use command line tools. I'll write scripts to do things so that I don't have to deal with kind of like a extra complexity or the downtime of having to learn a new tool or deal with some new like a slow interface or whatever. Um, it's all those things. Awesome. And last question would be, do you have any like, short advice for graduate students? So recommendation for grad students, try to have those, um, like a, something that you're passionate about that you can explain 
right? If you if you really if you have that type of you know X factor, I think it's a good sign that you'll that you'll succeed in school, um, in grad school. Um, now you don't need that necessarily. I mean, the the other advice I guess would be to have thick skin, right? It's normal to have failure. Um, the difference between, in my opinion, the, the students that really stick out the PhD and the ones that um, sort of wants to leave earlier, uh, first of all, it's, that's, not a, that's not a failure, it's not a bad thing, but I think a lot of students get discouraged early on because they'll have papers rejected initially, and they're like, well, I don't know what, what to do. And I think that the, the difference there is just um, kind of like persistence and a willingness to say, well, you know what, how do I make it better? How do I solve this problem? And it's it's um, like that's a that's an important kind of like skill or, or or thing to internalize. You need to have thick skin. It's okay to have failures eventually. Um, you know, like if you're persistent enough, it'll it'll get there. My best paper, in my opinion, is one that got rejected six times, and then it ended up in a top conference. You you have to be kind of okay with with experiencing failure. Awesome. I really appreciate it, Dr. Leach. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Dr. Kevin Leach. Be sure to check out the timestamps in the description if you'd like to jump around. As always, thank you for your interest and your curiosity.